0: you know, the importance of understanding all kinds of phenomena, interaction. Um, But the line is necessary to achieve the goal of enabling human transportation and settlement within the solar system. So to my knowledge, this is the first time that the actual word settlement has occurred in a White House document. And why is that important? That is important because it changes, you know, what people consider their mandate is
1: from the defense and aerospace report this is the downlink a podcast about the intersection of space the space business and defense not just what's over the horizon but what's happening above it i'm your host laura winter hey there downlink listeners In this episode, we're taking a look at two game-changing, disruptive events that should happen this month. The first is the iSpace moon landing. Now, iSpace is a Japanese lunar exploration space company. And on Wednesday, iSpace made its debut on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. The initial share price was 254 yen. There was so much interest. The bourse was overwhelmed with buy orders. A hold is placed on trading the stock. So then on the second day, Thursday, iSpace closed at 1,135 yen. That's a 400% jump in value. And on the same day, iSpace joined the stock exchange. It also announced three time windows when the company's team will attempt to guide the Hakuto-R lander to a soft landing on the moon. There are two windows on April 25th and a third on April 26th. If the Hakuto-R lander makes it, it will deliver two rovers to the surface for its paying customers. It will be the dawn of the lunar economy when goods and services for lunar activities can be bought and sold. And the second event that could also change everything is SpaceX's Starship Orbital Flight Test. Starship is a super heavy launch system. It stands at 120 meters and could carry more than 100 metric tons into space. That makes it the largest payload capacity of any launch system. The way Elon Musk has envisioned it, the Starship will be like the 18-wheeler truck that can haul the materials necessary to make huge projects possible like space stations on orbit, settlements on the moon or Mars, at a truly affordable price. And because launch costs would be slashed, many more entrepreneurs could be able to participate in the space economy. Later in the episode, Peter Gerritsen will explain just what the Starship is being designed to do and a new White House policy document. But first, we're going to pick up where we left off last week with the second half of the conversation I had with space stock analyst Chris Quilty, founder of Quilty Analytics, and George Pullen, chief economist at Milky Way Economy, and Chris Stott, who is a serial space entrepreneur, and the CEO of Lone Star. It's a company that's working to establish data centers on the moon. So, you can imagine he's got a lot to say about the iSpace mission. Stuff. And the fun stuff really is the moon, which is why I'm so happy to have you on Chris dot. So, let's look at the moon. This month, the Japanese company iSpace is attempting to land on the moon. But this is the first commercial lunar landing. This has got to be huge for the commercial space sector. And to explain why, I am giving you the floor, Chris, Stott. I mean, oh, where no. do we even start?
2: I know, right? I mean, it's 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 50 years later since Apollo. This is just a prelude to Artemis. Uh, you know, the Artemis crew being selected uh, just two days ago. Amazing. We've had China now continuously active on the south lunar pole, far side, claiming the largest rare earth mineral deposit known to humanity for over 1,500 days straight consecutively. Let that sink in. With loads more missions coming up, they piled up with Russia, Team Tyranny, to go forward on the moon. And there we have a commercial company, iSpace, amazing. They have a great American operation too, by the way.
1: Yeah, and Um, they're in Luxembourg too.
2: Yep, coming in, bringing it home, it's awesome. And we have three American launches this year on the books, two from Intuitive Machines, one from Astrobotic. I believe there's a Russian mission heading up this year on the books, but you can never tell with them. But there's also certainly an Indian mission coming up too. And this is just the beginning of what we call the new lunar economy. It's happening finally in our lifetimes, but it is opening up commercial possibilities. And it's demonstrating the viability of a marketplace. Uh, and it's, it's incredibly exciting, and I wish them the very, very best of luck. Hot jets, as Robert Heinlein used to say, right? But this is really important. This is a fundamental shift in our access to energy and resources. It's not flags and footprints this time. It's strategic. Whoever is on the moon, who, whoever controls the moon controls the Earth, by the way. That is a rock of Gibraltar up there in orbit but more importantly, the energy and resources that change in the equation. The Institute of Space Commerce, change.space, founded by Jerry Purnell, Larry Niven, and a bunch of us, looking at how do you fundamentally change that economic equation by allowing energy and resources and technology from space. This happening, it's wonderful, it's logical, it's well overdue, and our own company, Lone Star, also headquartered here in St. Pete, we're over at the Maritime and Defense Center, not too far away from cruelty analytics, and uh, it's look, the fact that it's happening is wonderful. It's opening up terrestrial markets. It's just making the Earth, the, the Earth and the moon part of the same economic sphere. It's it's just Earth's largest satellite finally coming into play and adding to the to, to the terrestrial economy and real value and new services. I'll stop. I can go on forever. Paul Chris knows I did that. We did this this weekend at a tech conference. We did a, a double thing on stage together and it was so much fun. And thank you for that, Chris.
1: Oh, go on, Chris. Do the double stage here. I mean, what does this mean for the, you know, space economy here on Earth? I mean, this is a commercial company that's going to land on the moon where only, you know, nation states have really attempted to do this before, except for the bear seat. But unfortunately, it didn't make it. India has tried. It crashed as well. This is this could be big, right?
3: Yeah. uh, So this is Chris Quilty weighing in. Um, Look, I I remember distinctly, this was probably five or six years ago, I was at a conference speaking. Uh, There was, without naming names, a senior uh, NASA official sitting next to me uh, on the panel. Somebody in the, the audience asked him the question, what commercial activity has you most excited about the moon? And you know what his response was? I don't know. And I, I I about died. I'm like, oh my God, I understand NASA is a, a research science driven, but you know, can you please not name one thing, helium three, something, throw it out there. Um, so I think we're we're progressing pretty far. Um, let me throw out some kudos here, right? Um, iSpace is a offspring of the Google X Prize or the the X Prize program that they won, uh, they ran years ago to try to get landers on the moon. You had ten or twelve teams that tried, and these were guys. You know, it's years later, but but they're now getting there. Um, also, you know, kudos to the launch folks, most notably SpaceX, right? Because this was the the critical issue was you just can't close a business model when you're paying ten to twenty thousand dollars a kilogram, and the fundamentals of launch have changed. Um, although although SpaceX has used inflation as a an excuse for raising prices. I think in the long term, launch prices continue to go down, right? And that opens up the, the number of activities where you can commercially close a business model on the moon in cislunar or wherever. Um, and, you know, I think just as a sign of that, there was an announcement, uh, what was it, last week or two weeks ago coming out of Lockheed Martin, Uh, where they launched a new business unit called Crescent Space Services, and they're going to build uh, a couple of satellites to set up a relay service. So I think what's important about that, and they didn't provide a lot of disclosure around how they're financing it, but if I read the, the press release right, Lockheed is doing this on their balance sheet. like They're spending money to build satellites and try to build a communication system and sell a service that's pretty shocking. Like you don't see defense contractors spending their own money. They're good at spending our money, you know, at the behest of the government. Uh, But, you know, they famously spend, you know, nearly nothing on internal R&D because they can just get it all from the government. So uh, this is notable from the perspective, you know, not only of a very large Recognizable name investing in lunar and cis lunar activity, but the fact that Lockheed apparently feels compelled to use their balance
1: sheet. And to to add to that, uh, Nokia has a contract now with NASA to provide, I think it's at least three G, if not four G, coverage on the moon. So they're awesome. you know the infrastructure is starting. Well, I think,
2: think logical, right? Think of it this way: Nokia doing something on the moon. I mean. You're not going to re- redesign an Android or an Apple phone, right? You just go up there and use all the cellular infrastructure we have down here. Laura, it's a wonderful thing. I'm under non disclosures with Nokia. I can tell you that the team of first class, super avant-garde, really good at what they're doing, and they've thought this through so well. I've been, as Chris knows, I've been in the satellite communications industry for years, and I was impressed with, with what they're doing. And it's fantastic to see us taking a step forward like this. Fantastic.
4: An important note there, um, just to tag on to what Chris Q was saying on the Lockheed Martin announcement. So the, the Crescent Space Services announcement, that's a wholly holy owned subsidiary. And they've installed uh, someone that all of us are probably familiar with, who've been around space for a while, uh, Joe Landon, as their uh, CEO. So Joe Landon, of course, famously from planetor- uh, Planetary Resources um, a lifetime ago. And so... What we're seeing is the conversations around using assets and using available materials in space that started so long ago with someone like Planetary Resources has now come full circle. And you see a prime, you see Lockheed Martin starting a wholly owned subsidiary for infrastructure to support said resources. It's really, really a fantastic thing to see.
2: Now, and George, building on that and and Laura, something really important for the audience to understand We're in Space Race 2.0. I know we're in Cold War 2.0 with the Soviet Union's bigger, badder, meaner, better educated, better financed big brother. And I have no doubt that we, too, will win this one. Absolutely. But we're in Space Race 2.0. And how do we work that, leverage it, beat them, and get up there and start doing sincere business that fundamentally channels right back into our economy? This is new energy, new resources coming into the terrestrial economy, into our economy. This is like America finding a second America, right? This time with no one that we displace. It is a bounty unheard of in our history, and we need to embrace it, grasp it for all the strategic, political, and financial and commercial benefits it can bring to this republic and to all free peoples of the world.
1: Just just because... You know, I think you're preaching definitely on this panel uh, to the choir in many ways, but what do we need to do to, to light the fire under everybody's bum and, and get moving? I mean, as you said, it's been 1500 days mm-hmm. since China has been at the South pole dark side, you know, on an alleged massive, you know, rare earth mineral, etc. deposit. What's holding us back?
2: Do you know, it's an excellent question. I don't know the answer. I mean, when we're out talking to people and we give them that fact on China, they literally don't believe us. We say, go Google it. It's actually more than 1500 days, right? Since January 2019. And people are like, what, really? And I think we've lost that focus in messaging, in media. There's so much stuff going on. We look, we pay attention to the wrong type of Cardassians, if you get the Star Trek pun, right? But it's, it's, yeah, we've lost that fire and we need to reignite it. Um, but luckily we've got these billionaires who are not dilettantes, they are doing incredible things. Some of the richest people in human history as American citizens are giving their lives and their fortunes to take us forward into space to the benefit of every man, woman and child on this planet. And yet we all we try to do is hinder them, trip them up, uh, decry, shout, and throw things at them. It's like, no, absolutely not, embrace this, go, go, go. So somewhere there's a problem with messaging. And if I was to be a paranoid person, I would say that there's people outside of our country who are encouraging that negative messaging because the more they slow us down, the more they accelerate their plans. And again, we're in Cold War 2.0 and we're in Space Race 2.0. Sadly, a lot of us don't realize that just yet. We're in a fight for our
4: lives and we don't even know. I think to to take Chris's point in a, different direction. One of the things that I discovered um, when I started getting more involved with space, I've been involved with alternative assets and deep tech for a long time now, but when I started getting more involved with space was there is this information gap. Mm -hmm. There is plenty of airtime provided to a billionaire doing a thing. And that can be dismissed outright quite easily by the majority of our citizens, both well, here in the U.S. Heck, and you've got around King, the world, you know,
1: then Prince Charles, now King Charles, uh, uh, joining the Pope, decrying billionaires in space. Right, right, right. right. So those and, are pretty. Those are pretty big. You know, headliners saying this sort of stuff, and people follow. Yep.
4: Yeah. And the problem. And the problem is that um, I am a huge fan of the work of NDT of Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I'm a huge fan of what many of these billionaires are doing to promote our future in space, but there is a absence of speech and thought in between those two. Mm -hmm. People need to translate this into, these are companies creating wonderful jobs, and these are companies creating wonderful technologies that we will use here. This is not up and out. This is, we're inventing things that will benefit us all down and around. I think we lose that sometimes when we talk too much about heading to mars or wherever it is we might be talking about heading to we have to realize that if we're going to thrive in a cislunar economy so an economy that brings in the moon and the earth and all the wonderful things happening in leo mio geo and x we're also going to have to have an economy that is circular by nature it'll be a circular cislunar economy we will have to reuse and upscale things in new and amazing ways. And that technology to reuse things and build things purposefully for that reuse and efficiency will be brought back as technologies will benefit us all on earth. That part of the conversation, people are missing. And I think that hurts us when we talk to the general population about what's happening in space and why they should be excited.
2: No, absolutely, George. And I would say like in World War II and the Cold War, we need that ghost back in the machine.
3: Yeah, so I'll I'll just weigh in with my my stock analyst hat here, which is uh, what we need are success stories, yeah, right. And and unfortunately, I can't. I mean, I can. You can look at a company like Iridium. They're you know nearly an eight billion market cap. We brought them public at three hundred million, right, back in two thousand nine. That's a success story. But if you look at their stock for a decade, it didn't go anywhere. Uh, and it's become a success story once they launch their new constellation. And unfortunately, that's the timing of things in our industry, right? And uh, yes, venture capitalists have a five to seven year time horizon that they're investing against. The public markets doesn't even have a quarter, right, that that they'll give grace on, you know, if a story isn't working for most portfolio managers, Um If you look at what happened with the SPAC phenomenon, and look, I I don't begrudge it, that was $4 billion of equity capital that came into the industry. Is it all going to be put to use well? Not necessarily. And, you know, unfortunately, space SPACs, like all SPACs, are down. I mean, maybe space SPACs are down 80% and biotech was only down 70%. Is that a rub? Eh, I don't know. I don't think so, necessarily. But uh, I think what we do need to see are financial success stories, because in the end of the day, when you ask the question, why has the moon not happened? Um, historically, the answer was a com- combination of things. It was the technology wasn't there, the costs weren't there, and the capital wasn't there. And we've seen capital availability. You know, We're on a little bit of tenterhooks here, depending upon what happens in the next six, 12 months with recession and Silicon Valley bank fallout. Uh, because typically what happens in these periods with SVB going down is the uh, you know the the fund is going to look at who's in their their uh, you know current investments and they're going to sort them and they're going to say, hey, these guys in Group A, they're doing fine. We'll let them go. perfect group B these guys are good stories but you know what we're going to take and deploy some of our incremental capital in them to make sure they get over the line and there's going to be a group C where they're just going to cut them loose so there are going to be you know accelerated failures and depending upon how that is perceived i mean that is the natural state of things with venture investing uh so uh but uh, this is also an area where Back in 2010, I knew the six venture capitalists that had invested in in space companies. I think last year, there were 411 uh, by one account. And a lot of those guys are new to the space. This is their first investment. And if things don't go well, maybe they don't come back to to invest in the next space startup.
4: I think there's something here that ties back to what I said earlier, which is as we are looking for defensive purposes, as we head into Cold War 2.0, and we rely on these mechanisms, which have quarterly cycles and have five-year windows for exits, we we are in need of a stronger demand signal and a stronger mechanism coming from Uncle Sam that says, This is what we need and we are willing to pay for it alongside commercials, but we're willing to pay for it. We have seen glimpses of that. I know there's a ton of programs right now working very hard on this issue, but we need to understand that there are economic and financial realities that go along with investing and those economic and financial realities don't change because we love space. What can change is the size of the demand signal and the amount of support that Uncle Sam's willing to provide for this interim period. If we want to get to a commercial space sector that is commercially viable in and of itself, that's required. And we're not there yet. And things like Silicon Valley Bank and Electris Cube, when you said the R-word, are things that make the whole market nervous and it hurts us.
1: We are well over time, but I just could not bring myself to um to turn you guys off. Anyway, we have run out of time. And so I am going to bid you guys um, adieu until later. And thank you so much.
4: Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Always a pleasure. Thanks,
1: so, it's a given that Uncle Sam's purse is a finite financial resource, which means not every space program gets supported, no matter the ultimate intent, such as growing the economy or tackling global warming at scale with space based solar power. And the barrier has always been the cost of launch. Peter Garrison thinks Elon Musk's Starship could change that equation. Here's our conversation Hi, Peter. Welcome back to The Downlink.
0: Thank you, Laura. It's great to be back.
1: You know, I've asked you to come back on the podcast because it seems we're on the precipice of a very important moment in spacefaring history, the SpaceX Starship orbital test. But before we talk about that, please take a moment and introduce yourself.
0: Well, thank you, Laura. I'm a Senior Fellow in Defense Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council, and I am the recent author of two books, the first Uh, with Dr. Namrata Goswami, Scramble for the Skies, The Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space, and a just-released new book, The Next Space Race, The Blueprint for American Primacy, that is available now on Kindle and will be out in hardcover and softcover shortly. You know, and perhaps
1: even before we start talking about SpaceX and Starship and the orbital test, which is going to go to low-Earth orbit, you know, there is some really interesting news recently that came out of the White House about a low Earth orbit policy. And because I know that you really pay attention to this stuff, in that policy, was there anything that you found interesting, surprising, or perhaps even depressing?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, you know, just to put it in context, you know, this administration has continued the momentum and policy momentum of the last administration. Uh, so it's important to realize that the Biden administration has kept the space force and kept the Artemis program. And since they've come in, the White House has put out a string of national strategies in, in PNT, in orbital debris, um, most importantly in uh, in space uh, servicing assembly and maintenance uh, for in lunar We've never had a cislunar strategy before, and now a strategy for Leo. And I think, you know, the, the reason why the administration wanted to do this was to make clear that that there was a plan and a plan, of, you know, at the highest levels, for the transition and the retirement of the space station, um, and a, uh, a moving up of the commercial Leo destinations. And so Pretty much like all uh, interagency documents, this would have been broadly coordinated over months. And for the most part it's fairly boilerplate it's pretty much what we were expecting to see coming but it's coming. At a much higher level, you know we've heard sort of NASA talk about this transition, but here we have as a policy document out of the White House basically saying. we're going to retire the ISS we're all in on commercial and you know we, we want to do these goals and the the goals are very straightforward you know advance groundbreaking science and technology strengthen us collaboration and partnership promote market opportunities innovation and sustainability expand international cooperation and of course stimulate stem now those aren't terribly surprising um but uh but it's good to have these sort of articulated what i found uh and i would say that it continues sort of the very pro space development uh you know pro commercial space industry focus that we've seen in the last one so all that's to the good but what i found truly uh astounding actually because it's something that you know people in the space advocacy community community have been calling for for literally decades and this is the first time it's ever happened in a white house document is on page six in the third paragraph, uh, they talk about you know the importance of understanding all kinds of phenomena interaction. Um, but the line is necessary to achieve the goal of enabling human transportation and settlement within the solar system So to my knowledge, this is the first time that the actual word settlement. has occurred in a White House document and why is that important that is important because it changes. You know what people consider their mandate is. I think you've had many people that were pro-settlement within NASA, but they've never quite felt like that was their mandate. And when you see a White House document that says unmistakably that it is a that settlement within the solar system, human settlement is a goal, that will be empowering to a number of things, like the gravity prescription for human health, for reproduction, for in-space agriculture. It changes the nuance of how we understand uh, permanent presence from just, you know, like some guys who might work on an oil rig to, you know, folks that have families and, you know, become part of a, a, a permanent settlement.
1: And I guess you'd probably argue that one of the ways that we'll be able to open up low Earth orbit and perhaps the rest of the solar system to uh, settlement. Is SpaceX's Starship? You know, we could start off by calling Starship a launch vehicle, a rocket, but it's really so much more than that. The Vision is really a space transportation system. Peter, imagine if everything was up and running, right? What does the space transportation system look like? what are the fundamental parts of it? And, and how would it actually support that goal of settlement?
0: So I think that, you know, probably most people really don't understand just how revolutionary a design, uh, you know, Starship uh, hopes to be. Um, and of, And of course, you know, SpaceX has a lot of their plate to make this happen. But It's fundamental design is so different than anything we've previously launched because every single part of it is fully reusable. And so, how does it work it's got a it's got a first stage that looks very much like you know the just a bigger version of the falcon nine. And then it's got an upper stage, that is a full spaceship like like the X 37 or like the space shuttle would be that can go up do experiments, land on the moon, land on Mars, you know, and and come back. Uh, And that that upper stage is capable of refueling on orbit to go further. And so the way this is designed, you know, is, you know, the, the goal is to be able to take this single system and reuse it over and over and over again, like three times a day is what uh, Elon would hope to do. And to put this into perspective, all the satellites, the total mass that humanity has placed in space to date is less than 20,000 metric tons, right? One fifth of the mass of, of an aircraft carrier. A single starship, if it is able to perform the way Elon Musk wants it to, being able to launch every day, you know, at a pace of, of three times a day could transport an entire aircraft carrier worth of, uh, of mass every day. But if he builds just 10 of these, that would be a million metric tons on a yearly basis. And if he were to build 100, as he's hoping to for, for his Mars transit, you know, that not only enables you to start to build a city on Mars, but that's 10 million metric tons, the equivalent of 100 aircraft carriers worth of mass. And that means that you could do fundamentally different things than you could ever do. I mean, even if that was just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of that, it would be totally game-changing for what we were able to do in space. I just got lost into what you were saying.
1: (laughs) You make me dream. So the critical vehicle in this is the starship, but... Isn't this also kind of a transportation system? And and what I mean by system is that you you know you've got the star base here you know on Earth at Boca Chica, and I would imagine, and I know I'm just sort of going out on a limb here, so gosh, don't cut it off behind me, but that there would be other Starship type bases around the planet but once these ships actually reach low earth orbit or even further up into geo um or or even x geo i mean there's all these other things that are at play i mean we're talking fuel depots we're talking you know places where these fuel sort of tubes are are parked and and waiting or i guess could also be brought on board and taken along for the ride that things coming and going from the moon can stop at these locations that you would have, uh, the upper stages permanently up there and, and not even, you know, rated for earth reentry. Right. I mean, this is a system is what I'm talking about. This isn't just a rocket. This is a, like, like the Metro, but up in space where we're, you know, Happening. You're absolutely
0: right. So, I mean, you know, we've heard, you know, I think former NASA administrators talk about the SLS being sort of a railroad to space, you know, but it, but SLS, you know, is completely limited because it's, you know, it's fully expended on every mission. Once you transition to a fully reusable system, you can use that over and over and over again, and that enables you to drop the cost. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, a, a, first of all, you know, its original name was the interplanetary transportation system. And so you are talking about nodes on the earth, including earth to earth. So like the ability to go, you know, uh, you know, from a city in the United States to a city in Asia, um, you know, in 40 some minutes, instead of 15 hours, you're talking about potentially having multiple launch sites at sea in other countries. You are talking about starting to develop an actual base on the moon, and and this is what's so exciting is that, you know, Elon has articulated extremely ambitious, uh, co- you know, per sortie costs that over time, you know, as you as you recover your your initial costs, you get down to very close to the the cost of operations and fuel, and so you know you know, then you're talking about something close to $100 a kilogram. Um, But initially, it's probably likely to be, you know, 10 times higher than that. But that's still like, if you look at it for our moon program, that is somewhere between four and 40 times the uh, amount of space lift to the moon that you can get on the same taxpayer budget. So we could print in principle have You know, a four to 40 times expansion of our potential ambitions and you're right the in space portion of this is also fascinating. Because once you have this core uh, system, there are variants like you know there's clearly a a tanker variant Uh, there is also a, a refueling depot variant and so, like the concept to go to the moon looks very different than say the concept for you know, how we did it with Apollo. With Starship, you know, you launch one cargo Starship with the payload that's going to the moon and you launch one refueling depot and then you launch like an additional 10 uh, uh, refueler sorties to that depot and then the cargo uh, ship, you know, fuels up and heads off to the moon, putting down its full cargo of hundred metric tons and then potentially another, you know, uh, you know, depot stop somewhere else. And because you know SpaceX has chosen their particular fuels based on their ability to, for instance, get oxygen on the lunar surface and to get methane on Mars itself, it means that they can source, uh, you know, materials as, as I say, in situ. And then you know the last thing you brought up is yes, you know, that you could outfit individual starships to stay in space and never come back to Earth as lunar cyclers, or you could have them as temporary space stations. You know, one of the things that I think people don't appreciate is like, yes, it's amazing that you know we're getting a hundred metric tons to low Earth orbit, but we're also getting a thousand cubic meters and potentially a thousand, a thousand pressurized cubic meters of internal volume, which is about the same volume as the entire International Space Station has now. You know, many times more than the unpressurized place in the shuttle or the tiny, tiny pickup sized X-37B. So the potential to really accelerate the LEO market by having a much faster pace of being able to test much larger elements and bring them back to do faster iteration as well as the ability to deploy just volumetrically, unprecedentedly huge with the largest payload fairing ever, as well as, you know, just the the most mass, means that it opens up entirely new possibilities for markets and space tourism and and space solar power, for example.
1: Obviously, I mean, this Starship launch vehicle, you know, it's going to, you know, rock the launch market, not just disrupt, but I mean, really just rocket to to its core uh, to take things up to all the various earth orbits and to the moon um, and opening up these new markets um, on the moon and beyond. And I'm asking this next question because I know that you have run the numbers, you've alluded to the numbers, but what is actually that projected pricing? You know, and if, again, if SpaceX manages to get Starship off the ground, you know, follow that up with, you know, what are the civilizational opportunities that this vehicle and this transportation system, rather, can make possible?
0: So, you know, my best guess is that um, SpaceX will, will need to maintain customers for it, you know, for this. It's going to want to transition and recover its costs. So, you know, it's likely to be pricing the cost of a Starship, you know, right in line with its Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy. And so if it, if it prices it equivalent to Falcon Heavy, um, you know, that means that it's, it, you know, it's essentially going for about, you know, 100 million a launch um, till it starts recouping, you know, that's still uh, on, a, on a per kilogram basis. A drop from thousand five hundred and twenty to nine hundred and seventy. Right, that's a forty percent drop in our current launch price.
1: That's nine hundred and seventy dollars, not nine hundred and seventy thousand dollars. That's right, nine hundred and seventy
0: dollars. Right. Dollars, right? And a hundred million a launch. Um, but you know, Elon has forecast within you know uh, two to three years that 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 the launch could be as low as ten million and if it's 10 million a launch you know that means it's $100 a kilogram that is 15 times lower than today's price and so civilizationally you know what does that open up well first of all i've, I've pointed out already that you could potentially have a 40-fold increase in your speed of development and ambitions on the moon um, i think that's pretty exciting but you know our many are concerned about climate change and, you know, a, a system like this, you know, like, let's go with the, the big end, like, let's say that Elon decides that he wants to build 100 starships in order to go to Mars. Well, what are they going to do when they're not going to Mars? That system, in theory, that could launch 10 million metric tons, right, as I said, equivalent to 100 aircraft carriers, that could lift construction materials for 1,250 solar power satellites, each of which is two gigawatts, right? So you're talking a total of 2.5 terawatts of power. Now to put that into perspective, the total us generating capacity total is just 1.2 terawatts, right? So you're like double that in a single year of his Mars operation. And the total worldwide fossil fuel generating capacity is 4.4 terawatts so in two years, you could in theory, you know many other moving parts right but starship is. Space transportation is no longer the limitation in solving climate change that essentially two years of 100 starships gets rid of the number one problem on the global agenda. So just here's
1: a quick, perhaps even snarky question, but do you think maybe the reason they've been holding back, and I'm talking about NASA here, that NASA has been holding back on the space-based solar uh, power report, which was due last September, maybe they're just waiting on Starship to work, and then, you know,
0: that'll just sort of sell it. I I think it's, you know, fundamentally cultural, and I think, you know, it is... I think that unlike almost anything what, what else. What is NASA fundamentally can study. cultural?
1: What it, what, it, what is?
0: So, you know, NASA has never been the Department of Energy and has never seen itself that way. And it is has always sort of thought that, you know, massive space development is not the job of explorers and a, and a science agency. And they may be right in that. But I think they also realize that two things space solar power is always controversial because there are there are many haters out there. And I think it's unnecessary, right? I mean it's it's a simple question of can you do it or can't you, right? Can you get the technology right? Can you start moving down the economic curve? But I think that, you know, realizing that this is such a potentially large topic of interest, you know, they they globally, want to get it wrong. Well globally, two, it's they realize a topic that it's big stakes, right? I mean it would It would alter their attentions and portfolio and and you know bureaucracies want to keep doing what they've always been doing and putting forward you know something that your that your bosses might really like means that you might you know end up doing that and if what you really want to do is put people on mars then you know maybe it's just best to bury you know the solution to climate change that's horrible
1: but it's an answer well As you well know, this podcast leans heavily into defense. You know, what services and capabilities will Space Force or even actually the rest of the service branches seek to leverage for operations if Starship actually works?
0: Well, I think the first thing is, right, the increased possibility of much higher launch cadence and the ability to deploy, you know, large constellations. So we've already just you know, recently seen SpaceX deploy these ten SDA satellites. We know that you know, you know they have big plans to bring out the, you know the larger Starlink to provide much higher bandwidth than the current version. And you know, there's there's direct phone possibilities out there. Um, so you know, the the first thing that we'll see in defense is just going to be existing payloads at comparable or better prices and an increased uh, ability that the DoD will will start to think about once it's there, you know, it'd be nice if the DoD were were thinking ahead and betting on Starship and starting to think about developing payloads that make use of its ginormous, uh, you know, mass to orbit and, uh, you know, and volume and uh, and payroll of varying but You know, that's honestly not likely to come until it's proven. So, you know, three years from now, maybe, you know, we'll have a payload that actually would make use of the of the Starship's capabilities. And even then they might hedge their bets and say, no, you know, we we don't want to design something that only a single launch system could launch. So I, I think the DoD is likely to underperform what Starship could do for national advantage. The next thing that will become apparent is that it's a giant X-37B. It can do everything that the X-37 can be with probably, you know, much more maneuver capability, refuelable capability, and just it could potentially explode the, the potential of the space test program. You know, we we could we could be talking about having, you know, an order of magnitude 10 times as many in-flight experiments as we do now, and, and so they'd have to think about how you do that.
1: And you just got to roll back the tape just real quick. What is the X-37B for those who have not been actually following along on that particular program?
0: So the X-37B uh, was an experiment by uh, the Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office of like a mini space shuttle. You know, it is a autonomous drone space shuttle that could go up and it had a payload bay where you could essentially test out equipment and uh, and bring it back down. And it could remain on orbit for a very, very long time. And it had a, a significant amount of, of maneuvers. So having, you know, essentially a reusable satellite that can go up and test something and then bring it back down so that you can look at it, that lands in a fairly soft manner uh, without, uh, you know, breaking something apart. Um, and of course, you know, something that, uh, you know, that could be done, you know, privately, you know, that you could, you, you know, who gets to see, you know, what's happening in your payload bay, I think, you know, seems like a pretty useful thing. Well, Starship's going to make all that possible. And then, you know, in addition to what Starship does for in-space maneuver, in particular for in-space test, for, you know, space lift in general, um, the fact that it refuels and could go to the moon and and Mars uh, and really any rocky body will open up kind of the aperture of how the Space Force is thinking about Space access maneuvering logistics, and of course, the last thing is that because Starship has, uh, you know, articulated SpaceX has articulated a design for uh, point-to-point travel on planet Earth. The Space Force and U.S. Space Command and U.S. Transportation Command and Air Force Research Lab uh, have walked down, you know, trying to see whether or not this rocket cargo idea could, you know, could work for them in certain situations where. You know, you needed to get something to the other side of the world in, in you know, a much, much faster period of time. And so SpaceX, you know, has been awarded about $102 million to, you know, to help think through how that would go in rocket cargo.
1: So lastly, this test is going to be taking place hopefully sometime uh, in the coming week, maybe towards the end of the coming week. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Will you actually be going to Boca Chica to go see
0: it? I really wish I could, but, uh, you know, I'm not at present, but what a historic moment, right? If you could be somewhere to re- like really see the world changing right in front of your eyes, I think that, you know, and of course we don't know that the first test is going to be successful, and I don't think the first test is is the upper stage is planned to, you know, to to land, I think it'll it'll burn up on on reentry for them to understand what's going on. But, you know, seeing something that is larger than any other rocket that has been launched and is such an attractive rocket, that that would have to be pretty astounding to see, and and hopefully like literally lighting a candle to a better future. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura.
1: That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.